Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. But I'm delighted to welcome our first guest to the studio this week. He's had a very distinguished career, beginning uh, by training as a chartered accountant and taking him to some of the uh, world's most well-recognized companies, such as uh, Diageo and Lonro. He was, for a, a lengthy period of time, the chief executive of Wasps Rugby Club, remains on the board there, and has recently taken up his role as chief executive of the Racecourse Association, an association that is uh, set to wield more power in coming years with the new shaping of the British Horse Racing Authority Board, of which he is also a member. It's my pleasure to say a very good morning here on Luck on Sunday to David Armstrong. David, lovely to welcome you to the, to the show, and thank you for coming in on Easter Sunday as well. well thank you very much, Nick, and very, very, very good for you to have me. And you've been in, in situ since February, March? Yeah, so I began at the beginning of February and spent the first month or so sort of working three days a week doing that sort of learning curve piece getting to know everyone, understand what's going on, and, and populated by the fact that on, on day three, equine flu broke out. So that gave me a little bit of a baptism of fire into the sport very quickly. I bet it did. I, I read that you, you weren't due to start the job until March, but you were so keen, you were such an eager beaver to get behind the desk down in Ascot that you'd actually gone in early and started in February. Did, did you regret that when equine flu came along? Um, no, I didn't regret it. Actually, equine flu, I think, handled very well by the BHA, but gave me an opportunity to meet a lot of people very quickly, probably faster than I might have done otherwise, and get to grips with issues a bit quicker. So in one sense, it helped me in my induction process, and so, no, I didn't regret it. Uh, what did you learn about the sport as a whole through that tricky time? Well, I think I learned that we uh, approach issues or crises like equine flu very, very professionally. I think the way in which the BHA and their team went about addressing the risks, acting decisively, was very encouraging and very positive, and, and it was what was needed at the time. So I definitely learned that we, we know how to deal with a crisis. But you also will have been witness to quite a lot of flack that was flying around and the usual amount of mudslinging between the racecourses and the horsemen and the BHA, who bore quite a bit of the brunt of criticism at the time. Did you think, my word, what have I got myself into here? Actually, no. Uh, I've had the fortune or misfortune sometimes to see other organisations in crisis and understand what it brings out. And of course, it does bring a little bit of extra pressure, a little bit of extra tension on people. And it's how people deal with that that's interesting to watch. So I thought it was uh, important for me to feel and feel part of it. And you said that rugby in itself, which is where you've come from, it, it has quite a complex structure and you have to bring stakeholders together and, and get people to sit around a table and try and be a little bit more diplomatic in the way that they, they deal with each other. Just give me, give me an example of that from your, from your previous career. Well, I think within uh, rugby, for example, the, uh, the challenges of bringing 12 or 13 premiership sides together to, to agree anything is quite difficult. Mm. Uh, not least, they are either all typically entrepreneurially owned by successful people in their own right. So these are smart, intelligent people making their own decisions. Trying to bring 13 of them into a room to make a choice about an aspect of rule changes or structure of the league or anything else requires a lot of delicate management. Uh, and we were involved in that almost daily throughout that time in rugby. And do you th conceive of that as your as your primary skill, if you like, that you're a, you're a good ne negotiator and communicator rather than necessarily your your financial acumen as your as your primary skill? It's a good question. I suppose probably a little bit of both. I think they, the two overlap with each other. A successful negotiation often involves a good commercial understanding in the first place. Mm. But I hope that I can bring some of those skills to, to racing and particularly the, the need to bring parties together and, and work as one. Uh, I've seen already we have a, a tendency potentially to fragment 
within the sport and I think it's important that we try not to do that and we work together and understand each other's issues better than, than we perhaps we have done in the past. Uh, your, your sort of opening words, if you like, when you took the job were, were quite interesting and, and you played some, some interesting shots straight away. One of them I was particularly struck by was your assertion that racecourses aren't really making the most of themselves as bits of real estate and as, as commercial entities outside of the, the days they race. How do you think they could do better in that regard? Well, I think I look at the model that we created with WASPs at the RICO, where we had an amazing facility, I admit, and it's, it's very conducive to doing many things with. But we, we held, over the course of a year, roughly 900 events, of which only 16 were rugby matches. Yeah. So that would range from other sporting events, uh, concerts for up to 45,000 people, uh, exhibitions, meetings, for, ranging from four people to 45,000, um, bringing uh, over 1.6 million people a year to the venue. And we worked that on the principle of we wanted every room to be used every single day, built a sales structure to do it. Now, every facility is different. Each race course is different from each other. They're all different from the RICO in their own way. So the plan, there isn't a one-size-fits-all, but the idea of I've got this incredible asset, this race course, this great piece of land and great facilities on it, I want to try and use that every single day yeah. and every hour of every day. And I think we can do more. Some of our race courses do that well. It's not a, it's not a criticism of, of, of all courses. I just think there's opportunity for more and more. Who's leading the way on what you've seen so far? Which race courses do you think are I think, are really I think there's a variety. Um, I think some of the jockey club courses are run very well in, in that regard. Uh, I had the great fortune to be at Lingfield on Friday for the all-weather finals, and I think Lingfield, with its, with its uh, golf course and, and hotel, is another example of, mm -hmm. of being very well run. So I think they're, they're spread out um, around, the, around the estate. But you would encourage more tracks to think laterally about how they could use their real estate to, to be more commercially successful? I think so. I mean, a, a racing itself, of course, is facing its own financial challenges at the moment, and mm -hmm. one of the ways out of that uh, for a race course is to make better use of their assets and to look to bring other revenue streams into it. Now, they're, they're all trying in their own way. It's not as though people aren't trying to do that. I just think there are some examples, perhaps, of some of the things we did uh, with Eureka, community-related projects, for example, that we might be able to bring uh, into the racing world as well. Where do you think the sport should be channeling most of its resources, even if its resources are limited? What should be their absolute number one priority at the moment, if they've only got so much to spend? Well, that's an interesting question because I think the, uh, there's probably several different answers to it. One of the things that's very important to me is how we create and grow a broader audience for the sport. And by that I mean the race goer, it might be the television viewer, it might be uh, other aspects of the sport, it might be sponsors. We need to create a more attractive, broader-based product mm -hmm. that can bring more people into it. Mm -hmm. And that might be about, therefore, investing in the race day experience. It might be about investing in marketing. It might be about investing in sponsorship to help make all our race courses more uh, self-sufficient. And I think that's important from a race course point of view. Difficult to comment from the wider BHA agenda because there are so many priorities. Uh, and uh, the levy board itself is spending on some very interesting areas on, on the horseman side of the debate as well. So there isn't, I don't think, a single answer to that question. But from a race course point of view, I'm really keen to see how we can grow our audience. So you would actually increase the marketing spend because it's a, it's a common... A complaint is probably putting it too strongly, but it, it's often um, stated by those who run Great British Racing and BHA's marketing arm that they just haven't got enough money. They haven't got enough money to promote and market the sport the way, they, the way they'd like to do it. So would you, would you divert money into, in, into that 
pot. I think, I think I would. I think it's also about how you spend it. It's yeah. easy to put money in a pot, but you've got to spend it smartly as well. So this year, the Levy Board has given additional funding to Great British Racing, uh, and that'll help to grow existing campaigns like the Under-18s Goes Free campaign. But what we have to be careful of is, is very fragmented spend. If you just spend a little bit here and there, you actually don't get enough of an impact. So it's about finding the right campaigns to invest behind that work not for one race course, but ideally for all race courses. So it's not just about having more money, it's about how you spend it as well. A racing's financial model still, albeit that you know, the, the media rights income stream, an awful lot of people don't know exactly what that income stream is, um, still is, is essentially founded on, on revenue through, through the levy. Through, through betting on horse racing, but you've made some interesting comments about whether the sport should be yoked intrinsically to betting or whether it should seek to promote itself, betting notwithstanding. What's your, what's your position on that? I think it does need to promote itself, betting notwithstanding. The, the betting support for our industry, for our sport, is incredible. and We've got support right the way through, whether it's the levy board level, online, bookmakers, retail, all supporting our sport in an amazing way. But I think what we're doing in that is we've, we've almost allowed ourselves to become insular with that thinking mm -hmm. and not appreciated enough of actually all the other ways we can bring people into the sport as well. So I wouldn't for a moment want to reduce the involvement of the betting industry, but I'd like to see other ways we can bring people into our sport. And that might include, for example, in, in the world of sponsorship. We have a lot of support in the, in the sponsorship field from the betting companies, which is natural. But I think we can go much broader than that and bring a wider range of people to it. And it's interesting the way you phrase the question. And, and, and to me, bringing out the story of racing as a sport is the, is the key message. It's uh, number two sport in terms of most attended. Uh, revenues are you know, substantially higher than competitors like rugby, cricket, and others. But we haven't really made enough of a story about us as a sport. I've seen surveys done of sports where they're ranking them in terms of audiences and everything else. And we sometimes just get missed out altogether. Mm. We're seen almost more as that little bit of a leisure pastime. What I think is really important is championing racing as a sport, a great sport that it is. Incredible athletes, both equine and human, and we need to tell more stories about that and make that part of why people come racing. Uh, and if we do that, I think we'll... It's not about uh, uncoupling ourselves from the betting industry. I just think we'll add in more... Uh, more spectators, more race scores. So here's the question I want to ask you. You've had experience at, as I said, some of the world's most significant blue chip consumer brands. Why aren't those brands sponsoring horse racing? Well, I think one or two of them are, but there's an awful lot that but aren't. You know what I'm getting at. I do, and I think there's a, that there's a perception amongst, amongst some brands about the, the association, rightly or wrongly, too closely with, with gambling. It, do, you, um, do you really... Do you, genuinely believe that? Yes, I can point to one or two examples that I, I, I'm aware of where a sponsor may have hesitated because of the, the link to the gambling side of what we do and, and maybe some of the negative aspects of gambling as opposed to the positive aspects of gambling. So we need to rephrase that message. We need to you know, help the, the potential sponsor understand that it isn't actually just about gambling, it's about sport. Mm. It's about great athletes and it's about huge numbers of people coming and spectating and enjoying their sporting day out. Uh, gambling or not. So I think we have to work at that. And, and, I, and I understand why some brands feel a little nervous, but I think the opportunities are, are very significant. Do you think there's a nerviness surrounding animal welfare issues? I think inevitably there is. 
Um, and it's a headline that lurks there every now and again. And, it's and, a hot topic at the moment. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And if you've got a, a sponsor who is, is looking at the whole sport holistically and looking at the risks for their brand, you may see them also hesitate around the welfare issues. But I do think, and particularly with the creation of the, the new Equine Welfare Board, that we're really beginning to demonstrate how seriously we're taking equine welfare. And the changes that were made for this year at Cheltenham, carried through at Aintree, mm. and some of the other you know, aspects of what the Equine Welfare Board will be looking at will start to make a difference. Can we remove the risk entirely from the sport? No, we can't. I think everyone would, would accept that. But what we have to do is to create a pride in the way in which we're approaching equine welfare, and that pride is something that sponsors can buy into. I want to talk to you about the new British Horse Racing Authority board, because quite quietly it's come into being now, a 10-man and woman board rather than the 11-man and woman board that was in existence before, with greater representation from the racecourses and from the horsemen. So it's more representative of the BHA stakeholders than the wholly independent board that was, was there before. Why is that a good thing? Why is it an advantage? Why is it good for the game? Well, hopefully what it'll do is by having the, the horsemen uh, representatives and the racecourse representatives at the table, it brings all the relevant experience and knowledge to the decision-making process uh, around any given issue. The better, the better the quality of experience of people in the room, the better the debate and the better the outcome is, mm -hmm. is probably the theory. And actually, having sat through and, and experienced my first board meeting in the new structure, it works. The, the element of additional input from the racecourse side and from, and from the horseman side, I think, made for a better meeting. We have our second one this week, so hopefully that will continue. <laughs> You're an optimist. I'm always an optimist. Um, I, do, I do feel that it's much better to talk yeah. than to have people not in the room and sort of pointing fingers afterwards. Better to be in the debate, part of the debate, and try and influence from within rather than throw stones in from the outside. Well, you'll be familiar now with the rhetoric from the more vociferous horsemen. Racecourses are too powerful and we don't see sight of their media rights income. It's not publicly available data. Should it be publicly available data and would it help the sport if it were? Well, I think publicly available, probably definition, I wouldn't be publishing it in, on the front page of the Racing Post, for example. But the ability for the horsemen's representatives to understand and see what media rights income a racecourse earns is, is important. And, and we're actually in discussions at the moment about re-implementing prize money agreements that existed up until I think it was a couple of years ago. And one of the requirements of those prize money agreements is that the media rights income is disclosed to the horsemen. Now, those agreements had lapsed, and therefore that disclosure process had lapsed along with it. And because of that, there's an element of distrust or a, a lack of transparency people feel. The prize money agreement at least, at least sort of patches that over and, and does create that transparency. It's, we still need to be careful. There's some very sensitive commercial information that would be disclosed. So how it's disclosed and, and where is part of that same discussion. So probably not on the front page of the Racing Post. But you would like to see it made available to yes. representatives of the horsemen so that they know exactly what sort of money the race courses have to, to give out in, Absolutely. Terms of, in terms of price. Bank. Absolutely. Do you think that's going to make life more difficult for some of the bigger racecourse groups? I think they would probably say they've been doing it all along. And so they've disclosed that information before mm. uh, in the old prize money agreement structure. I don't think it will make it more difficult for them. I think they are happy that they, the level of prize money that they're offering, the level of executive contribution they're making, is actually well above the minimum standard anyway. 
and so they will be comfortable in, in sharing that, that information through, you know, through the right confidentiality process, but sharing it so the horsemen can see it, yes. How many of the race courses in Britain make a profit as things stand? Good question. I'm not exactly sure uh, as I sort of get up the learning curve as I go. I suspect not very many. Many operate a business model uh, of trying to achieve a break even. Uh, some of the very largest ones will make a profit, of course, as they go through that. But to the extent they're part of a group, they may be subsidizing other parts of that group. Mm -hmm. So that, that makes sense. Uh, none of them make huge profits. Many of them, of course, to the extent they make a profit, reinvest back into facilities. And there's a significant investment program that goes on all the time across the sport, hopefully for the better of the whole sport. So the exact number that make a profit, I couldn't tell you sitting here today. Um, but uh, I, I would be confident saying it's certainly not all of them. And it's certainly very few that make a significant profit. Do you, do you scratch your head at that, given your experience in other, in other fields? Does it... Does it does it perplex you, bother you, worry you, or do you think, well, this is just a, a sort of weird structure of sustainability that racing's come to? Uh, probably all of the above. Um, it, it, to the extent that you've got different owners of race courses, different groups of owners of race courses, have got different commercial motivations. Mm -hmm. So some will be looking to operate it like a normal commercial business and generate profit for the owner, perfectly natural. Others look to reinvest that and actually come out at a break-even each year. And those are two different financial models, and neither is right nor wrong. They're just what the ownership groups have chosen to do. So in one sense, it is slightly perplexing. But the way I look at it more simplistically, and I think what's part of the RCA's role, is how do I help them all make more money? And what they choose to do with it is sort of up to their owners, mm. um, rather than us telling them what they should do with it. Things like the prize money agreements regulate how much of that goes into prize money, and, and that can always be adjusted. But essentially, what we're trying to do is to find a way for racecourses to make more money uh, in every way they can. So we talked earlier about some of the non-race day activities. That's a great example of, of helping racecourses make more money. And what about the atmosphere that you create on a racecourse? How important is that? I think that, that's hugely important. Um, I mentioned the, the all-weather finals day at, at Lingfield on Saturday, or Friday rather. Beautiful sunny day, some great racing, and an absolutely incredible atmosphere. 10,000 people enjoying every moment of their day out. I've also had the privilege of attending Cheltenham this year, Aintree this year, and seeing very different but equally compelling and passionate audiences. I think it's really important because what it does is it brings people into the sport. They come and enjoy a day out. They bring their friends. They bring their family. They'll, bring, they'll, they'll, they'll have something to drink. They'll have something to eat. They'll place a bet, and they'll have had a great day out. And if they've had a great day out, they'll come back. Given how keen you are on customer experience, and I know how hard you worked when you were at Wasps to get families to go to the rugby and enjoy the experience, how concerned are you by the booze and drugs culture that seems to have been pretty prevalent this winter in, in horse racing and indeed last summer? Well, I think probably like, pretty prevalent is perhaps exaggerating it slightly. Well, there was a, there was a brawl or some sort of um, booze or substance fueled escapade on just about every Saturday of last year, it seemed. Well, I, I, reading back on it, I don't think it's quite as often as that, but it may feel like that. You know what I mean? Um, I and, and especially in the summer, there was a really intense period of... Uh, no, on, on our policy on, on both, of course, the race courses and with the RCA is, is very much one of zero tolerance. Um, the RCA was one of the first members, if not the first member, of Drink Aware and continually repro uh, promote responsible drinking at the race course 
take a soft drink between each drink. All of these types yeah. of messages you'll have seen as you walk around courses. And the amnesty boxes. The amnesty boxes on the drug side. Yeah. And those sorts of things are all part of what we do. You'll have seen at major meetings as well, the, the sniffer dogs who are there looking for anyone bringing drugs into a course. There are a number of steps that you can take and we continue to you know, improve those and amplify those as we go along. We have a zero tolerance approach to that. We don't want people to come to a race course to get drunk. We want people to come and have a great day out with their friends, family and, and drink responsibly. And uh, we've got to keep working on that all the time. Because it's, it's going to deter people, isn't it? If, they, if they're witness to a fight, which is frightening. Mm. You know, if you're if you're not the one throwing totally. the punches, it's pretty frightening. If you're if you're not involved, and we saw it at Haydock recently, mm. a gentleman there who's probably in his sixties or seventies, minding his own business, sitting on a bench, and these two guys in the middle of a fight just come along and knock him straight over. And it's that's just not the sort of image we need to be portraying of, of this sport because it's such a great sport in so many respects. So how how do you go about assisting the racecourses in sort of getting the getting the people to come racing who are really enjoying the day for what it is? Well, I think you, you mentioned families earlier as a, as a good example of the, the, the type of target audience we would, we would love to work with. The ability to create the, the sort of the family atmosphere will, will create the right atmosphere on course in due course as well. So you bring together families, you give them uh, family-driven activities on the day, not just come and sit and watch the racing or come and sit and have food and beer. What other things can you do to create a day out for a family? And we, used to, we did that a lot at Wasps, as you mentioned. What we were very focused on was what's the com who are we competing with mm. for the family's leisure pound. Now, this is interesting. Um, because who, who are we competing with? Well, I think we're competing with the sofa, uh, is, the, is the biggest competitor we have. And that, and that sofa is not only somebody watching racing sitting on the sofa, but it's doing everything else they might do on the sofa, on their, on their tablet or, or anything else of that nature. In other words, the, the, the potential race goer has so many different... Uh, ways in which they can interact with the, the leisure world, they spend their leisure pounds, mm. that we've got to distract them away from. And the number one challenge is the sofa. In other words, the slight complacency of, of I'll just sit here and, and, and I won't go out today and do something. Could it give them a reason to come? Is it too expensive? I don't think so. I think the uh, the, the admission to race courses is at a sensible level. Um, it's, it's actually less than, for example, than rugby, the average ticket price. So I don't think the entry price is particularly prohibitive. I think it's the cost of the it's the spend through the day. Isn't it, it is, and you, you whether you have some some drinks, some food, you you place some bets. Uh, so it can be uh, a relatively expensive day out. But for a family of four attending racing, you know, firstly you've got your under 18s go free program, which means that you can mm. bring your children and enjoy that. Uh, it would it'll still cost less than a day out at Alton Towers or something else that you might choose to go and do. So I don't. I, the, every event in every event in le the leisure industry has to be conscious of price. We're not we getting that message across clearly enough, are we? I don't think so. No. So how do we do that? I think we need to start talking about those family days. You know, I'd love to be out there saying, right, let's create a family day for you. Two adults, two kids, come along and enjoy the day. Let's reserve a space for you that you can. You know, is more downtime for the kids plenty for them to do, maybe meet retired racehorses, that type of thing, so they can interact with the sport more. Because actually, if you think about a day's racing, and that you might have your first race at 1.30 and your last race at 5, you're probably on the course for four to five hours, yeah. during which time the racing itself takes maximum of half an hour. So I, and I, in terms of that intensity, racing is, the, is the, at one, right at one end of the spectrum. 
So what have we got to do to entertain those race goers for the other four hours that they're there? And that's actually really hard. We've got to think of it like that. So we need to use the race course spaces more creatively as well. Yes. And, and allow, actually allow people more access to more areas? I think so. I think particularly with kids, the, the ability for the kids to, to, to see race horses. It's that magic moment. Mm. Uh, I've watched that a little bit as younger kids get the chance to around the edge of the parade ring or the pre-parade ring to see the horses, the scale, the athleticism, you know, the, the majesty of the horse. Kids love that. And can you and your new role help the racecourses achieve this? Or can they just say to you, well, David, that's all very well, but you're here to, to be our political leader, not to advise us on how to, how to run, run our racecourses? Well, hopefully they'll be at least open-minded to the fact that I bring some relevant experiences from other sports to that. Um, we, uh, we talk about WASP for a moment. What we did with kids was, was vitally important. We created um, an indoor fan village of 9,000 people before every game. And that fan village was largely devoted to activities for kids. Mm -hmm. Whether that's meet rugby players, meet injured or players that aren't playing that day for wasps. The chance to throw a rugby ball around, the chance to learn to play netball. We have our wasp netball team as well. The chance to take part in bouncy castle type activities, that fun things for younger kids. Mixed in with the opportunity to have different types of food, different types of live music, different types of, uh, of soft and alcoholic beverages everything all mixed into one zone. Today, as we, as we prepare for a rugby match at Wasps, that fan village opens two to two and a half hours before the game. There's a queue outside to get in because they want to get in and be part of this experience. So as a new club in the West Midlands area, mm -hmm. one of the big challenges was building that loyalty, building yeah. that fan base. And we chose to do that specifically through the family and through family experience. And we've now achieved an average crowd of some 19,000 a game. When we were in High Wycombe, we had a crowd of 6,000. And that's been driven by what we do with experience. It strikes me talking to you, and it's been fascinating listening to you, that you don't just want to be a racing suit, a racing politician. You want to be someone who shapes the sport and shapes the look of the sport. Is that fair? I hope so, yes. I mean, I think I can bring a lot from previous experiences. You know, I like to be out and about. I'm not the sort of person who likes to sit in an office or in too many committee meetings, which we're very good at in this sport. I would much rather be working at the race course level, chatting to you know, the people running a course, hopefully sharing ideas with them, you know, talking to them about the use of data. We haven't talked about data, but data is the currency of sport. And we're in some ways, in racing, we're really good with our data when it comes to, to betting, race cards, everything we do of that sort is, is second to none. We're very poor at using our data to drive attendance, to drive um, race day experience to drive benchmarking of best practice. All of those things are, are very important. Whereas your American sports are absolutely brilliant at it. They are. And it's I'm probably the key to the NFL's success. NFL, the NBA, if you have a chance to, to visit the US and, and attend an NBA game or just be part of being mm -hmm. around an NBA game, absolutely amazing. And the NBA is a big inspiration for what we've tried to do at Watts but now trying to do in horse racing about creating the fan experience. It is second to none. Mm. Well, I look forward to monitoring it and see how it works. And it's been, a, it's been an absolute pleasure to meet you, David. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. And hopefully you'll come back next series and tell us how you're getting on. So I'd love made, to. Made it sound like an episode of Blind Date, didn't I? But you, know, you know what I'm getting at. Thank I you do. very much. Thank you, Nick. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Al Basti Dubai.